All right, hi, this is Tony Mormino with Insight Partners and welcome to the Engineers HVAC podcast where we work to give back to the HVAC community by sharing our HVAC application and design experience. This is a live recording of episode 39 of the Engineers HVAC podcast and this episode is titled HVAC Mythbusters Events Separating Today's Fact from Fiction. This does qualify for PDH credits in North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and Georgia. So please email me after the show. I will get you the certificate. The email address should be on the screen there. Okay, so let's get right to it. We're excited to introduce today's guest, Ryden Atzenhofer, our new Charlotte Territory Sales Manager for Insight Partners. Ryden is an experienced sales and business development professional in the HVAC and our commercial and residential industries. Been with us now for, I believe, a few months and has over 15 years of experience. Ryan is is also the host of a well-known HVAC podcast called HVAC R&D, where Ryan and his co-host Dennis discuss HVAC, plumbing, electrical, and life in the trades. With over 30 years of combined experience as contractors, wholesalers, distributors, and manufacturer representatives, Uh, and technical training. These two are changing the game and spreading the belief that the future of trades is about education and growth. Ryan, welcome to the podcast and feel free to go ahead and introduce yourself. Talk a little bit about your, your, your podcast. So what's up everybody. So, uh, most people know, usually I'm cracking a beer on a show, but today we'll do something (laughs) a little bit different. Um, but in an ode to, uh, the loyal fans, my Celsius is showing, uh, we've got a great running joke with some Canadian buddies of ours, as well as Pat, who I know is listening, so he'll get that joke. Um, but Dennis and Dennis and I started our show about just about three years ago, um, kind of the same time you did. You know, we were stuck in a branch, couldn't go see customers, didn't know how to really communicate with them, so we were just trying to find a different way to start reaching, you know, our trade and talk about different things we do day to day because you know it's. It's one thing to just go into this and everything be the same, boring, different thing every day. But there's also, we all have lives. Um, and it's important that we enjoy the lives we get to have because we work hard in the trade that we love. So that was kind of our ode to it. And we know that if we're continuing to go out and talk about all the good things in our trade, it'll help continue to entice more people to get into it. Great. Awesome. Sorry, I was distracted there for a little bit but um, with a technical thing. But thank you, Ryden. Thank you for doing that with your podcast. I think the trades are extremely important. And we're going to talk about a little bit about that. And one of the one of the myths, I believe it's myth number two. And I did notice on your graphic there, you guys are cracking a beer. So that's the difference between your podcast. You guys are having more fun than we are. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, so I gotta, we're, the, we're the after hours guys, you know. You're the after hours guys. That's right. Awesome. Well, and, you know, there are so many people like yourself, um, that have really in-depth technical discussions of different things. And we felt, you know, it was important that we we promote those guys, such as yourselves, Brian Orr, HVAC School, Trevor Matthew, Refrigeration Mentor, Pat, Commercial Kitchen Chronicles, these guys that do different things in the industry but and have mm-hmm. really interesting conversations. And we felt, you know, we needed to have a show that that did something different, that brought something to the community different than everyone else was doing. So that's kind of why we take it from a little bit different standpoint. And also, you know, doing it from the wholesale and distribution side is also a little bit different take than you hear a lot of different shows. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's great. It's so important. Super, super important. So 
anyway, we're glad you're with Insight Partners and we're glad you're here today. And so here's kind of a little bit of a rundown of what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about five different myths. Um, myth number one is A2L refrigerants are highly flammable and dangerous. We're going to talk about that. Myth number two, college is the only path to success. Myth number three, relative humidity is an accurate way to measure humidity. Myth number four, my digital compressor is short cycling. And myth number five, hot gas reheat dehumidifies the air. So that's kind of what we're going to go over today. So a myth is a widely widely held but false belief or idea. And I have to say that is absolute worst uh, Bigfoot costume I've ever seen in my life. We showed that before, but I couldn't resist. It's like, I'd be more scared to see that guy than the real Bigfoot, okay? And, you know, up here in the mountain, you got to be careful calling that a myth because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, I believe, bumper stickers around here. So anyway, just couldn't resist showing that. So the first thing we're going to talk about today, and I think that's, you know, on everybody's mind is that the A2L refrigerants are highly flammable and dangerous, okay? That's a myth we're going to dispel. So if you're, if you stop watching now, we're not saying they're highly dam damaging and flammable. We're saying that's a myth. Okay, so um, let's delve into that a little bit here. Um, so for those of you who've been around a while, uh, you're very familiar with, with these transitions, right? So in 1996, we transitioned from 12 to 22. And then in 2010, we transitioned to 410A. Now we are transitioning to lower GWP refrigerants, okay? We used to focus more on the ozone depletion. That was really the, um, the seed of transitioning to the HFCs, you know, the CFCs is a chloral fluorocarbon, HCFC, a hydrochloral fluorocarbon. So we're getting rid of the chlorine, which is the, the element that destroys uh, uh, the ozone layer, layer and go into HFCs. The new, um, you know, regulations are bringing us into lower GWP HFCs. So it's not going away from HFCs. So uh, 410A transition to lower global warming potential. Um, refrigerants. The two viable candidates are 454B and R32. Ryden, what are you guys hearing in the field about these refrigerants other than they know it's coming? Is there a lot of, is there a educational gap there? Do they need information or do they, what's going on in the field? I think there's, there's truly some of both. Um, you know, I think it's frustrating to contractors knowing that they're going to add multiple additional jugs of refrigerant to their truck. Um, mm -hmm. because it's it's less cost effective having more different refrigerants out there for what we primarily see in the you know five ton and under residential world also some as you're getting into you know light commercial from what we've seen initially you know everybody was worried that it was going to blow up in the back of the truck mm -hmm. or there were you know multiple discussions and i know there's different things about how it can be transported so there's worries and fears there um <clears throat> But I think in the long in the long term is trying to sort out one, how is the industry even going to go with it as we go into next year? Because right. it's still up in the air if we're going to have pre-charged units, if we're going to have dry units, have to charge them ourselves. There's so much still up in the air about it. Okay, great. Thanks for the feedback. And we're going to talk about a few of those issues as well. So we'll we'll incorporate that. That's good. I'm glad you're here because you get a lot of the in the field information that I don't get sometimes. So um, yeah, so as as stated, so this is a a a global initiative basically to go down to uh, GWP lower than 700. So if you look at this chart here, R410A sits at 
2088. So what those numbers mean, if you're not familiar with it, it means it has um, 2,088 times the potential for global warming in the atmosphere than does CO2. So if you see CO2 at the bottom there, that's the baseline. So any multiple of that is your global warming potential number. And you can see R32 and 454B go underneath the, um, the, the 700 limit. So different manufacturers are going with different uh, refrigerants. They're all starting to kind of announce what they're going to in the, in the field, and they're going to start releasing those next year. Um, let me just see here if I have any more notes. Okay, so that's enough for that. Um, and if you're watching and have questions, please put them in the chat too. We're glad to answer any questions if we can. This is kind of the lay of the land as far as where we're at with the phase down. So there's a lot, we get a lot of questions on this. So the EPA NOPER, um, which is the Notice of Proposed Rule, which is not an official law yet or rule yet, but it's it's likely to pass and not change the way it is now. So January 1st, 2025 is chillers. Chillers cannot ship with, with a global warming refrigerant over 700 after January 1st, 2025. Same with residential commercial. So we've got a year, basically a year and a half. VRF, we've got a little bit longer, which is um, 2026, January 1st. We also have that. Now that is the equipment. Okay. We also have the production of the actual refrigerant itself. That's a separate phase down schedule, 40% by 2024, and then 70% in 2029. So they're two separate schedules. You can see a detailed, we did a detailed presentation on this. You can see it on our, on our YouTube channel, Insight Partners HVAC TV. We don't have a lot of time to go into that now. And we are doing another podcast with Don Gillis. Um, he works for Chemours, Chemours, and they actually make 454B. So we're going to be doing one with him in a couple of weeks. He's really the expert um, on this stuff. So here's what the big deal is with this transition. Unlike other transitions, the new replacement refrigerants carry the designation and safety classification of A2L. Now, what does that mean? Okay, there's this misconception that these are going to be like propane. You put them near a match and boom, they blow up. That's not really the case. I've done a lot of research on this Correct. over the past few months. And um, so ASHRAE 3422 is the standard by which uh, they develop this safety group rating chart. So it talks about safety in terms of flammability, and it talks about toxicity. So um, the A, by the way, means it's non-toxic. The B means toxic. The 2 means flammable. And L means a low burning velocity. We're going to talk about what that is. So if you look at where we're at now, riding the 410A is A1, you know, yep. so it's non-flammable, non-toxic. Um, just for reference, ammonia is a B2L and propane is an A3. Okay. So that's a little bit about the rating. So when you hear A2Ls, that's what it's talking about. It, it falls in this lower flammability standpoint. So what does that mean, right? Like that means nothing to me in my brain. I'm a more of a visual person. So let's look <laughs> at what that means, right? So here's an A1 refrigerant in a test chamber. And you could do, you could look at YouTube videos. Um, there's plenty of them online where they actually talk a little bit more in detail on this, but I'm going to show you some snapshots. So what they do is they put the refrigerant in a test chamber to light 410A takes an enormous amount of energy. You can't just light it with a match. It doesn't stay lit or anything like that. So, um, they get it to combust, and then they measure the propagation of the flame, the distance the flame spreads. And you can see those yellow lines as to how far it spreads, right? So that's a class one refrigerant. 
If you look at the class two, see how it goes over these little lines? See that riding, the little area yep. with the circles? That's what makes it a class two, okay? That little difference in flame spread. So if you go back here and you go here, and again, I've seen YouTube videos and I didn't want to show one here because I don't want to have anybody try this, but there's actually guys with, you know, torches trying to light these refrigerants and it's almost yep. impossible to keep them lit. So you've, you've seen some of that? Oh, yeah. Because we were trying to do, you know, the same kind of research on the residential side because that's where a lot of these guys are scared of all the different things they're seeing and hearing, which I know we'll get into some of those other crazy things we're hearing with it too. Exactly. And there's always a lot of fear around these things. So my my take is, and I'm going to show you, so, so what we're showing here, so that's propane, right? Like that to me is something that's flammable. You, you put it on a match and boom, okay? And if you look at all three of these together, you can see there's just an enormous difference between the class one and the 2L barely any difference than the class three. Um, you, know, you, you still have procedures you have to follow per law for the A2Ls that are different than the, than the, um, the class ones. And we're going to have, again, we're going to have Don. He'll be on here. He's going to go through a lot of that with us, hopefully, because I'm not an expert on, on that kind of stuff. So um, what do you think about that, Ryan? Any closing words on the refrigerants? No, I think at this point, it's just, I think guys are going to have to start actually working on it to realize it's a lot safer than their, their fears are are starting to lead them towards. Um, and I think over time it'll, it'll work out a lot easier. I think the other, the other one thing we're hearing in terms of phase down and discussion for future between the two refrigerants is mostly if they decide to lower the D the GWP scale again, because <laughs> yeah. we've already heard, we've already heard rumors that they may drop it to 500, which if they yeah. drop it to 500, then everyone that went 32 is going to have to change to 454. Yeah, and and even scarier. Well, I don't know about scarier, but more challenging if they drop it even more than that. There aren't hardly any options. There's propane and ammonia. No. I don't see that happening. So unless someone comes up with some magical um, solution, but you know, one of the things I I know is we a lot of engineers are not involved in these decisions and manufacturers, as you and I know. Um, we get these we get these regulations from from the lawmakers. And um, one of our, our our key guys was on our show the other day. He said he walked into one of the regulatory meetings for, I think it was um, the efficiency standards. He said there was 12 lawyers and one, <laughs> one, one engineer. So that's who makes these laws and these rules. You know, we just kind of follow behind them. So um, anyway, enough, enough about that. So, okay. So that was myth number one. So my research shows they're very safe, uh, very um, not a big problem to use them. So the second myth we're going to talk about is uh, we've called this, you know, college is the only path to success. And really what we're trying to show here is, you know, college may not be for everybody. College is great. Ryan and I both went the college path and this is not an anti-college uh, segment. It's just to say that, hey, there's a lot of opportunity in the trades right now. There's a lot of demand. There's a lot of high paying jobs available. So maybe college is for you. Maybe it's not, you know, maybe this is something you need to look at. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Ryan? So like you said, we both went to college. Um, I was lucky enough that I grew up in this trade and I had this trade skill and that's what paid for me to go to school. So I didn't go into debt for college because I worked. But, you know, a lot of people have that option of either we can go to a trade school or we can go to college. Either we can start building a job that pays us or we can build debt to hopefully create a better return on investment when we get out of school. So you have to kind of weigh those things. And some of that even comes down to the type of person you are. I know when you and I were doing just some preliminary chat on some of this, you know, when you start thinking about what you want to do later in life, 
you know, do you want to be outside? Do you want to be inside? Do you want to do different things? But I think even more importantly for this this entire topic, and and Greg touched on it some in his show with you and in some other ones that Dennis and I have, have tried to listen to and collaborate thoughts on, everyone right now that's watching this isn't some 18-year-old kid we're trying to get into the trade. Mm-hmm. So how can we take what we sit here and discuss mm-hmm. in this show and go back into the community and actually get these kids involved enough to want to come do the things we're doing? Because the other thing they don't see is they just see that the first three to four or five years, in a lot of cases, it's not the fun part of learning the trade. You've got to get in the crawl space. you got to get in the attic. you got to learn how to run duck. you got to learn to do different things. If you're on the commercial side, you're figuring out different ways of running pipe, doing different calculations. So there's a lot of additional backlog to get to where you want to be. But mm-hmm. if you look at it from a college versus trades perspective, you can take four years of sitting in a classroom to get to where you want to be, or you can take four years of busting your hind in out in the field to get where you want to be. But at least during those four years, you're making something to get there. So it's you right, kind of just, right. just weigh the value of, of what you want to do. Right. And if we're talking about trades, you know, just in our HVAC industry, I mean, what are the trades? You've got electrical, you've got plumbing, you've got pipe fitters, welding, you've got fire geez, and fab. I mean, unbelievable amount of, of opportunities there. And then you think about like, I got this picture of the manufacturer. I was thinking about this from a manufacturer standpoint, like think of all the trades involved to get that ore out of the ground, change it into metal, change it into parts, get it to the factory, get it to the field so that we can be comfortable in these buildings, you know? And I, I, for one, don't put a lot of um, thinking into that, uh, how much goes into that and how much opportunity there is there. So um, yeah. So thanks for that input. I totally agree. So here's an interesting statistic that, um, you know, kind of drives home the, the, the opportunity. So um, this is from ACHR News. Recent statistics indicate that about 290,000 HVAC technicians are currently working in the U.S. There are approximately 110,000 unfilled HVAC technician jobs. That's a 38% short of the number needed to fill the workforce. In addition, 8% or a net loss of 23,000 people are leaving the industry each year. That net loss includes people coming in to take other people's places. In just five years, there'll be the existing 110,000 people shortage plus 23,000 leaving each year, which means there'll be 250, 225,000 people short of filling the jobs and demands we have today. Essentially, there'll be 1.8 jobs available for every willing technician. So, you know, there is a big shortage in HVAC techs in other trades as well. So, you know, which that's like, nothing new. <laughs> that's nothing new. Um, yeah, we we've been short of people a long time, but you know, you start looking at other ways. You start reading articles saying, "Oh, well, we'll just fix this problem if we make equipment smarter." I was like, "Well, just because you make equipment smarter doesn't make mm-hmm. it doesn't make technicians be able to do more during the day. It actually dumbs down the level of your technician." I hate to say it, but if if you're just hiring somebody to go read the board and the board tells you what's wrong every single time perfectly, then what's the value of the skills we have in this trade? I think it, I don't think you can eliminate or fix a workforce problem just making something smarter. No, I a hundred percent agree. It seems to me the more smart they try to make the equipment, the more educated the techs need to be. 
Well, you know, and that's, because it, you look at the VRF <laughs> systems today and you go out there, you know, I have an engineering degree and I'm like scratching my head trying to figure this and that out. And the techs that know that stuff backwards and forwards, they're extremely, um, yeah. So definitely. Well, and, and speaking of that too, uh, it's another topic that Dennis and I have hit on multiple times. So Dennis is a tech trainer for Bosch on his side of everything. So he and I see things kind of from two different sides and we can help each other back and forth. And one of the things we see more and more now is these companies want these high-end products. They want their sales guy to go out and sell these high-end products. But mm -hmm. what's the one thing they continue to forget? The installer has to go put it in. And yeah. they don't, you know, they go and they're, they're having the guys that are making the most money sell the highest-end piece of equipment and having the guy with the least training go put it in. And they're wondering where the disconnect is while they have issues. And there's yep. a distinct lack of training and even building your own employees in this industry that has to get fixed. I absolutely agree. And we, you know, as you know, we spend a lot of time doing we that. Do. That's for we sure. As, as most manufacturers reps do. So it's, it's definitely a need in the industry. So when you look at, you know, my brain works like this. If, if you're considering college versus a trade school, you know, I've got these two images here. One's supposed to be the college, you know, just do your homework, you know, talk to some folks in the trades, go out, spend some time with them. You may realize after 10 minutes, boy, this is not for me. You may think, boy, I really like this. Or on the opposite side of that, if you, if you have a career in mind, maybe marketing or you want to be a sales guy or whatever, go find the person, see if you could shadow them for a week. You know, that's what I wish I'd have done when I, when I started out. I was like, I was like the worst. I'm like, oh, I'll go to college. I guess I'll be a major for here. Yeah, yeah, yada, yada. Um, so, um, yeah. So being self-aware of like what you want to do in your future is, is super, super important. I think, um, because you got to work a lot, like you're going to work most of your life, most of the hours during the week are going to be at work. So make sure you find something that you enjoy doing. And, and, you know, the ladder of success is there for both college and for trades. You know, you can learn a trade and you can climb. And if you want to grow your own business, great. If you want to be in the trades, that's great too. You know, just be self-aware, like what you're looking for. And don't let the limitations of society and like the, the biggest piece of advice I can give someone who's new is don't go do something because your parents want you to do it or like you feel like your neighbors are going to, oh, I don't want to tell them I do this for a living. I had a little bit of that when I was in engineering school and I was telling people I was going to air conditioning sales and there was a little bit of a like, you know, a snooty attitude about that. You know, that wasn't real engineering, but I, you know, I grew up, you know, with air conditioning with my father. So I had some familiarity with it and I always wanted to go into sales. I don't know why it's just the way. It's. So, you know, don't let that stop you from following what you want. Um, you, there was a comment you wanted to address, Ryan, go for it. Yeah. And, and you kind of spoke to some of it, but I saw uh, Joe's comment about incentivization and compensation as well as cross training throughout the industry. Um, I definitely believe cross training is a great incentive. I think, you know, there are times when service techs or, um, <clears throat> excuse me, not service techs, but guys that even work on the wholesale side, there may be times where a guy that's starting in wholesale as a warehouse guy, he should go spend a few days in the field with some installers mm -hmm. and some service guys, especially if if you're looking to get into outside sales and distribution like I do. One of what I feel has been one of my greatest advantages is that I grew up in the industry. So when I got into wholesale, I already knew what equipment was. I knew what materials were. I just had to learn a computer system. So right, I could go out right. and kind of immediately start to be effective. But as we're bringing in, you know, younger employees to the wholesale side that don't have any experience in the industry, I feel one of the fastest ways we can help them be more successful is go stick them in a truck with one of our trusted contractors to show them a little bit of the ropes. 
Um, absolutely. And that's real life learning right there for sure. So yeah, good stuff. So yeah, we talked a little bit about, you know, getting the word out. Um, obviously the, the online tools we have today are great resources, right? Like when I yes. was in college, the, they had this thing called the World Wide Web, <laughs> which was uh, something we knew nothing about. And, you know, we didn't know, we had to go to the library to find stuff if we could even find stuff. So today it's like, it's really nice. And I see a lot of, you know, some of the gaps in the trades obviously is, is for women and the younger generation. Like that's what I think um, that I see. And I see a ton of new podcasts coming out, women in the trades podcast. So if you're interested in learning more that, about that, you could check out podcasts. You could check out some of the social media platforms. Um, and then we talked a little bit about when we had uh, Crumpton on the show a few weeks ago, we were talking about the next generation, like the Gen Z, how do we as you know, companies get them more familiar with the trades and obviously using these online tools today, like riding, like your podcast is a perfect example in our podcast, YouTube channel. So those are really nice ways. Um, and the good thing is on some of the platforms, you'll actually see people out in the field doing their job, you know, live yep. videos, which is a great way to say, oh, that's what a plumber does or, oh, that's what a welder actually does. Um, you know, so you could check those out. And as an industry, it's nice if we could share those things as well. So, um, yeah, so to finish up this topic, you know, I look at it kind of like a three, like a triangle, right? There's the, the blue collar stigma. Don't buy into that. You know, I know plenty of people who are successful and extremely happy. You know, my, my mother was a mail carrier and she loved it. Same thing every day. She went out and did it. You know, that was her yep. thing. You know, she'd have it no other way. So make sure, and that goes into the self-awareness, make sure you're self-aware as to what you want to do in life and that it's enjoyable to you. And um, don't get that college tunnel vision. College was a great path for me and I wouldn't have changed it, but that's not the right path for everybody. You know, you might go there and, and, you know, whatever you do, look at the ROI on your degree. You know, don't, don't spend six figures to get a degree where you're going to make half of that. It's going to be really hard to pay that back. Um, you know, if you go there for, go there for free and get it. That's great. Um, but just be careful with the, with the ROI. So um, any last words on this segment? Right now, I I think we hit a lot of the nails on the head there. And I think as we continue to do things like we're doing between your show and my show, Greg, and a lot of these other guys, and especially all the people on social media that, that are, you know, the install guys that are out there showing people kind of how it's done and what you do and looking at best practices on some things like that um, is greatly positive. I think we just need to find a better way to continue to build our community. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so there was a comment too before we go to the next segment. Andy Chapman was asking me the scale of the test chamber. I'm not sure. I've seen photos of them. They're relatively small for the refrigerant flame test. So uh, maybe we could find that um, out and let you know. And I think there was a comment by Steve Clinkson saying that Tony is a chemical engineer. He can invent a new refrigerant. I have a degree in chemical engineering and I know nothing about chemical engineering. So <laughs> I'm not the guy to create your new refrigerant, trust me. Um, Okay, so Ryden's going to refresh real quick, and we're going to move on to the next segment. Um, Ryden had an issue, so I'm bringing him back in. There we go. Back, Ryden? Yep, we're good. Awesome. I lost the stream. I couldn't see what anybody was saying. Yeah, no problem, no problem. So the next myth we're going to talk about, um, which is one of my favorites, is relative humidity is an actual accurate way to measure humidity. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. That's a, a Relative humidity and humidity are confused often in the industry, and they're so super important to know the difference. So I love sharing this, and um, hopefully this will help somebody. So I'm going to change to a different format here so we can see the bigger screen. Everyone see that okay? Okay. Let's try this. Boom. Okay, there we go. So 
Relative humidity is the percent of moisture in the air versus how much, it, how much it could actually hold. It is relative to the temperature. So to illustrate this, we're gonna take two, uh, three containers of air, one at 55 degrees. We'll heat it up, and as you would imagine, it would get a little larger at 75 degrees. And at 95 degrees, this same volume of air would get a little bit larger. So three containers at three different dry bulb temperatures. Okay, so what does 50% relative humidity look like in these containers? Well, it looks like this. So if you took each of these containers and filled them up halfway, that would represent 50% RH. And we'll throw some numbers on here because we're gonna reference them in a moment. So what do you notice about the water volume in these three containers? You know, it's, it's a lot larger in container three than one, right? So that's mm -hmm. the, that's the, that's the in a nutshell, the flaw with using relative humidity for an, as an indicator of how much moisture is in there, right? Because they're all, they all have the same value, but one has a lot less moisture. So it's dependent on the temperature, which is where we can get in trouble in the HVAC business. So, okay, so we're gonna illustrate that by plotting these on a psychometric chart. So we're gonna take the 50% RH line, which is right here, we're gonna plot that against the dry bulb temperature of each of these containers. So you'll see 55 degrees is here, 75 degrees is here, and 95 degrees is here. And we'll go ahead and put a little dot here to represent these containers. Okay, so if you're familiar with psychrometrics, what do we know about the psychrometric chart as we go from the bottom up to the top? So as we move up the chart, that's an increase in humidity, the actual amount of moisture in the air. Okay, so you can see three is much higher than one, of course, as we discussed. Dew point is a great way to track the actual amount of humidity in the air. It's not relative to the temperature, okay? So you can see the dew point here, dew point here and here, and we'll go ahead and put some numbers on these. Oops, went too fast. Okay, so you'll see the dew point of container one is 37, and the dew point of container three is 74. So this is illustrating that dew point is a much better, you know, number or way to show the actual amount of moisture in the air. Make sense, Ryden? Yes, it does. Okay. So um, which is better to track humidity? Relative humidity, again, is the value is relative to the dry bulb temperature. Dew point increases in values as the air, uh, moisture in the air increases. Okay, so we'll go back here. So which is better to track humidity? I think we've already talked about that. Um, yeah, so the point here is just to show that, you know, why do we use relative humidity sensors so often rather than measuring dew point? It's because they're cheap. <laughs> they're yeah. less expensive. Um, you know, we do a lot of... Uh, make up air units and, and we measure a lot of OA uh, dew point. And we do that by measuring the RH and we measure the temperature because those sensors are relatively inexpensive. And then we calculate the dew point of the air. So, you know, that's the way we do it there. Um, there's plenty of videos on this too, on our YouTube channel. You can go check that out anytime or listen to our podcast where we talk about that more in depth, but okay. So we're going to move on to the next one. Anything to add to that, Ryden? I think you covered that one about as simple as you could make it. Okay. I like it simple. I'm a simple man and I like simple solutions. So, okay. Myth number four, we're going to talk about digital 
compressors. Um, my digital compressor is short cycle. We have a question here. Da, 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 top line, they're doing a great job communicating trades. Nice. Um, this might be a question. Ryden, why don't you take this question if you know of any? I can't see it. Okay, I'll read it to you. It says, any organizations come to top of mind that are doing a great job of communicating the trades to high school students? So I worked with, so when Dennis and I were in Atlanta at AHR, um, we actually did a group of student tours with the Atlanta College and Career Academy. And I know they have both high school students and I believe community college students. And we took around a group of, of high school age kids through multiple booths, kind of showing them the industry, teaching them different things. I know we, we went to NABAC, went to Vega. Um, Becca and Colton from from Vega were part of our group, so they did a lot of help with us. It was really cool to get to see them interact with the kids too and kind of teach them different things. Um, and then I know here in, in Charlotte, um, Inside has just partnered with the Urban League. I know there's there's probably some high school students. I don't know all the age ranges that are in there as that's a brand new partnership for us. So, you know, we're trying to do more things to get in front of high school students. I also believe there's a program um, in Concord close to where I am called Tools for Schools, um, which I'm starting to get some information on. But I think that could possibly be something, you know, in a high school area that would be really good around here. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. There's something called, um, thanks for that, Ryan. There's something called an ACE, uh, ACE program too, which is, uh, um, I think it's architecture, construction and engineering where they go into high schools. I'm looking it up right now. It's acementor.com, A-C-E mentor.org, uh, excuse me. So acementor.org, anybody listening could pull that up. Um, and check that out. I know they do a lot of work with high school students, but I really think that's a deficit in, we could be doing more uh, in the schools to definitely teach the trades and show them um, what they're all about. That's for sure. And I think there's uh, a couple more um, pieces of information in the, yep. in the chat. So you could check that out. So thank you, Ryan. Okay. And thank you for the question. Please keep them coming. We're glad to, if we can answer them, we're glad to, glad to try and answer them. So myth number four, we're going to talk about my digital compressor is short cycling. Digital compressor, otherwise known as a variable capacity compressor, or a VCC compressor, all names for the same thing. And I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna try to play a video with some <laughs> sound. This is always a challenge when you're live streaming. About half the time it works and half the time it doesn't. And no matter how much we prep, it just sometimes doesn't work. So I'm gonna try and play it. If you could hear it, great. If not, we'll just talk about it. But this is what um, a digital compressor sounds like in the field. You hear that, Ryden? Yep. Okay. I'm not sure who heard that out in the internet world, but I heard it. Ryden didn't hear it and Heather didn't hear it. So hopefully I heard you guys it kick heard it. on and that was about it. Okay. Well, that's uh, we took, we took a big gamble today. Hopefully it paid off. I'm curious to see if someone wants to post if they heard it or not in the chat. Um, okay. Okay. We're back now. Okay. So before we talk about a digital compressor, 
Um, let's talk about a standard on-off scroll compressor and see kind of how that works. Like a scroll compressor is the most common compressor in industry, right? I don't know how many. Um, oh, Tanner said they heard it loud and clear. Yay. So we got some people that heard it. Rock on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's talk about what a typical scroll compressor looks like, the construction of it. And then I'll tell you what the difference is in a, in a VCC compressor. Okay. So if you look at this compressor here, I'm going to try and use this, uh, this pen tool. You can see this is our suction line here, our discharge, discharge line here. Got some power connections here. Internally to the scroll, up here is where the compression takes place. It's where the scrolls come together. We'll look at that. And then down here somewhere is where your motor is. So that's a typical on-off scroll compressor and not much different from the digital. And we'll look at that in a second. So here's an animation of the digital compressor, or I'm sorry, the standard on-off scroll compressor. Make sure you guys are seeing that, right? So if you were to look down in the top of a scroll, this is what you would see. So this pipe here, this copper uh, pipe here is your suction. And you can see the gas is, you know, the color represents the state of the gas. So the blue color is more of the lower pressure, lower temperature gas. And as it goes towards the middle, it increases in temperature and pressure. And what's happening here is you can see as these scrolls come together, see how the refrigerant travels through here? The space, uh, the volume of the refrigerant decreases as it travels through the scroll. So it's actually a pretty amazing design. It's pretty million, brilliant. You wouldn't think by looking at this, it would last very long, but these are extremely robust and last forever. I mean, what's your opinion on scroll compressors, Ryden? Um Majority of the time, I completely agree with you. Um, we've seen some headaches here and there and different manufacturing things over, over the years. But, you know, the majority of my time in the field and even on the sales side, you know, scroll compressors was a major selling point of, of the equipment that I've sold and moved because of its reliability and durability over time. So I really, outside of a few hiccups here and there, can't say much bad about a scroll compressor. Those things have stood up to a lot of, a mm -hmm. lot of it over time. Workhorses, yep, for sure. Yep. Okay, so what's the difference in a digital? Okay, so here's a digital compressor. Now, take a look at this and see if you can see something happening here that's odd, right? So if you look at the top scroll, see how it goes up and down, mm -hmm. up and down, up and down. Okay, that's a digital compressor, okay? Standard scroll compressors do not mesh or iron or unmesh the plates. Like the plates are always together. When the plates are together, you're compressing, you're doing work on the gas. When they're not together, you're not doing any work on the gas. Okay, so that's how we control the capacity in a digital compressor, VCC compressor, variable capacity compressor, et cetera. That's how it's controlled. You'll note that the motor is always spinning at, the, at a constant speed. The motor speed does not change. Okay, that's important to note. We'll talk about that in a minute. So how does that work? Like how does it, know what, how much to pump and not pump. Okay, so what we do, the digital compressor is typically broken up into 15 second cycles. Okay, and let's say we need 50% of our load at a particular time. What we do is we engage the scrolls for seven and a half seconds and disengage the scrolls for seven and a half seconds, right? That's over a 15 second cycle. Here's another example, if we were 80% loaded, we would pump for 12 seconds and be disengaged for three seconds. Now you would look at this. When I first looked at this, I said, well, how accurate could that be, right? These compressors give you extremely <laughs> precise 
yes, temperature, uh, suction temperature control. It's amazing to me how well they work. Also, when I first looked at this, I'm like, man, that's when you hear these compressors in the field, their first thought is that ain't right. Like there's something wrong with this compressor because it yeah. sounds so clanky. But I tell you, these things are like workhorses. We sell, we sold a ton of them and um, they've been around for over 20 years, I think now. And uh, anyway, even so when you hear that, that even, even more than, than that, that in Europe, yeah. and Europe and Asia have been using inverter style or variable capacity compressors forever. That's awesome. Um, so this is a, to illustrate the difference between a VFD compressor, I'm gonna see if I can get this to play. Oh, it's working, okay. What do you notice in this is a VFD compressor, not a digital compressor. You'll notice the speed of the motor changes, right? So this is a variable frequency drive compressor, VFD compressor, inverter compressor, all names for the same thing. In this type of technology, the scrolls do not mesh and unmesh. You just change the speed based on capacity, okay? Yep. So there's pros and cons to each of these. We've done a bunch of videos on it. I've used both with great success. I'm a big fan of both types of technologies. The manufacturers have done a fantastic job testing these. Um, really depends on the application, depends on, you know, in general, your VFD compressors are more efficient, but more expensive. You know, is the ROI there? Depends, right? It depends on the job, depends on how many units you have. Um, so that's the thing there. So when you go back to this video, I'm going to, I'm really going to step on a limb here, Ryan, and try to play this again. Because I want people to hear that change. Right there. Okay, so Ryan, sorry you couldn't hear that, but it looks like a lot of people um, listening could. So what, you, what you're hearing there is a click, which is the solenoid valve, which is basically creates a low pressure scenario, which allows the top plate to, to lift up. And then you're hearing the two metal plates disengage and re-engage. This particular compressor is almost fully loaded because it's only disengaging for a few seconds. So, um, uh, Greg had a question or a, a comment here, proper phasing of incoming power in three phase. <laughs> I was on point with that one. Why don't you, can you read that one? Can you see them riding? Yes, yeah, it says proper phasing of incoming power on three-phase gear is germane to proper startup. It sounds like it's coming apart if not phased properly. Please don't DOA it until phasing is verified. And he's completely correct. That sounds like a man with a lot of experience right there. Yep. Awesome. Thank you, Greg, for the, um, for the, uh, information there okay so let's see here we talked about a lot of stuff I'll, go ahead Ryden. i'll add one thing too um for the residential guys that'll listen to this later at some point also um we're seeing these inverter compressors as you call them become more and more prevalent in the residential side of the market mm -hmm. which is one of one of the big bonuses of me coming here was getting the sale of product that is full inverter from the bottom to the top um because that's something that our industry hasn't seen. And I truly believe that's the way the industry's going. Because I think over time, especially to a homeowner, having a product with an inverter compressor also allows a little bit of advantage to if they want to continue doing new energy efficient things in the home. If you've got an inverter compressor that can run at different capacities, let's say you put that in and a few years later, you want to foam your attic, increase your R value. Well, in some cases that if you had traditional single stage scroll product, 
it might not be oversized for the house and not function as properly mm-hmm. as it could. Having that little bit of wiggle room with inverter compressor that can adjust to the load of the house over time, I feel is a great sticking or excuse me, selling point, but it's also a great resale point for your home too. Because Very good it, allow, point. it allows yep. it to to change to maintain the comfort level in your home. Absolutely. Modulation is extremely important too in, in, in commercial business. And thanks for bringing that up. It is, it is a game changer really for us. So we've enjoyed having these, these new technologies to work with. So, um, yeah. So the last thing, Hey, Heather, uh, before we go on to the next one, would you mind putting up the QR code for the, uh, podcast? So the, the engineers HVAC podcast is where this is going to live after the fact there's a QR code in upper left. We'll just leave that up here so you can zap that anytime. Um, if you want to, listen to it. And we have one more myth we're going to go go to. And thank you all so much for joining us. By the way, if you're liking what yes, you're seeing, absolutely. please, please um, while we finish this last one, please throw us a like or two. We'd appreciate it or share it with a, a friend afterwards. We'd appreciate that too. So the last myth, boy, if I keep dancing, quit dancing around here. Hot gas reheat dehumidifies the air. We're going to talk a little bit about that and what hot gas reheat does, and what it really does. So before we talk about hot gas reheat. Let's talk about dehumidification. Let's define our terms. What does it mean to help talk about that? Let's get a reminder as to what dew point is. So dew point, as we talked about earlier, measures uh, the the point at which moisture will drop out of suspension out of the air. So air's got water in it. And when something comes into contact with that, that's colder than the dew point of air, we get what's shown in this photo, right? You've got this um, beverage that comes out of the refrigerator, which is uh, a bottle of water, uh, or on Ryan's podcast, maybe something a little <laughs> bit different. <laughs> you take it out on the porch, and if the if the can is at 45 or 50 degrees, and let's say it's at 50 degrees, and the dew point of air is higher than that, you're going to get condensation on the on the can. So why is that important? Well, that's how we remove moisture from the air with HVAC systems. So if you look at this uh, drawing here, you'll notice um, the mixed air dew point is 59 degrees. If the coil's colder than that, which if your system's working right, it should be you will get moisture removed from the air. So in this case, maybe the coil is 45, 46 degrees. You're getting 51 degrees off the coil, right? So that's dehumidification, okay? We're actually removing moisture from the air. This is what it would look like psychrometrically um, if you were to plot on a psychrometric chart. I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing this. We've done a bunch of uh, uh, videos on these as well. Um, so that point right there is where dehumidification occurs. So this right here, you're going a little bit over sensibly, then you go down, you're removing moisture from the air. This would be a cooling coil curve. This would be your return air, outdoor air, mixed air, comes into the system and we remove sensible and latent heat um, from the air. And then we get a little bit of fan and reheat. And then we have a 0.8 sensible heat ratio or SHR, which brings us up back to our Back to our point. So, okay. So we talked a little bit about what dehumidification is. So let's look at the refrigeration cycle and the components, and then we'll talk about how how reheat fits into that. Okay. So here's a typical refrigeration cycle. Let me make sure you guys can see that. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So. Okay, so four components to every, you know, refrigeration cycle from a water cooler up into a 2,000 ton centrifugal chiller. They all have these basic four components, right? You've got a compressor, you've got a condenser, 
you've got a pressure drop device, expansion valve, et cetera, and you got your evaporator coil. So the refrigerant, this is a R410A example. So the temperatures and, and pressures represented here for R410A. So typically 140-ish leaving the compressor. This high temperature gas goes out to your condenser, which rejects the heat to the relatively cool atmosphere and, you know, knocks it down 40-ish degrees, comes through your pressure drop device, which, which lowers the temperature and pressure of the refrigerant, putting it into a state that it can be, you know, boiled off and changed of state in the evaporator core, which is really where we get our BTU absorption. And then we come back to the compressor. Just for kicks and giggles, the pressure of the high side is, you know, 375, 400-ish and, you know, 120-ish on the, on the low side. Not really important to this presentation, just to give you uh, some info there. So now we're going to talk about how hot gas reheat fits into that scenario. Okay, let's say you had an air conditioning system that was producing 45 degrees because you were dehumidifying for a let's say a pharmaceutical mixing lab or something where they needed low dew point. And at some point, if you don't have a large load in the space, that air is going to be too cold. So if the air is too cold, what are your choices? Well, you can elevate the leaving air temperature, which it does not dehumidify as much. So maybe that's not an option. You could turn the unit off, which if you're trying to dehumidify, that's not an option. I don't know, Ryden, <laughs> do units off dehumidify very well? No, no, they do not. Okay. Well, if you find one that does, let me know. That would be a nice product to have. So, so <laughs> this is where reheat comes in, right? You're dehumidifying the air. You're pulling the moisture out of the coil. It's too cold for the space. And that's where we, that's how we reheat. So where, where could we pull some heat from this refrigeration system to reheat the air? Well, the, we're, we're rejecting all this heat out to the atmosphere. Why don't we use some of that heat to reheat the air? And that's basically what hot gas reheat is. Okay. We're taking the heat we would normally reject to the atmosphere we're bringing that around into another coil that's downstream of the evaporator coil, and we're heating that up. Now, I would I would stress too, if you're going to specify or use hot gas reheat, use modulating hot gas reheat. Modulating hot gas reheat used to be a luxury, but I think it's pretty standard on most people's products. And if you don't have modulating, you're going to get you know 45 degree air or 80 degree air. You know, and that doesn't give you very <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't give you much of a window for working on it either. No, exactly, and um, you know. A lot of what I tell here, I've learned the hard way. So don't don't do what I did. You know, make sure it's modulating. So don't do what I did a lot a lot of years ago. So you know, so here's what here's why the, here's kind of the we're dispelling the myth, right? So it doesn't a hot gas reheat is heating the air sensibly. It doesn't dehumidify. So if you look back, going back to our old psychometric chart here, this would be the cooling and dehumidification curve. We're starting at a point entering the coil. It goes through the cooling coil. It decreases in temperature and humidity dehumidifies the air. And this line would represent your reheat. So what do we know when we move from this area of the chart, the left side to the right side? Well, it's sensible only, like it's just dry bulb temperature increase. You're not removing or adding any humidity to the air. Um, humidity only decreases as you go down in some way of the chart. That's my little arrow there. It's looking, looking pretty lame, but that's what it is. So, um, and then you would have like a few degrees of fan heat, and then you'd pick up your SHR in this particular space, this is an extreme would be an extreme part load example where you're almost reheating the entire uh, sensible load for the space. A 0.53 SHR is extremely low. So, Ryden, any comments on that last myth we're busting here? Or? No, I think uh, it, it's it's much more interesting to understand how reheat and also I know we didn't really get into it, but uh, 
uh, hot gas bypass works because for the longest time, um, I think I was even misinformed about how it worked or how it was used. Um, there are a lot of manufacturers that may have one versus the other, so they try to explain how this one is the same as the other, but it's really not. Um, I watched a, the five-minute video you put on on YouTube, and it explained it better than I had heard it in probably ever. Um, because for the longest time trying to sell it in just the light commercial change-out market, it made it really hard to sell because it truly wasn't explained or understood to a lot of people that were in my position on that part of the sales side. So awesome. uh, this has been extremely informative for me on how to how to use it and, and how to use it in the proper situations. Great. Well, thanks. And thanks for the plug of the <laughs> of the Insight Partners uh, HVAC TV YouTube channel. You know, we do a lot of this stuff to give back and educate. You aren't, you're not going to see a lot of product pitches on our YouTube channel. We're really trying to just to educate the HVAC community. So um, come check that out. There's a a link, there's a, a QR code here, HVAC TV, or you could check out our podcast or check out, uh, how, how can people find your podcast, right? Ryden? So, uh, there's multiple different ways you can find us. You can find us on, um, uh, LinkedIn as HVAC R and D. You can also visit our website, which is HVAC R letter N D.com. And you can get to any of our stuff from there. Or if you're just listening, you can find us on Spotify, iHeartMedia, or pretty much anywhere that you can download a podcast. Um, episode 98 will drop later this afternoon. So when you're headed home, uh, give you something to listen to uh, when you're not in front of a screen. So yeah, go check us out. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thank you, Ryden. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, everybody else who joined us. And um, you know, please stay tuned for the next one. We really super appreciate you coming in here, um, listening to us and commenting, and it means so much to us. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching. Please email me for your PDH certificate. Tony Mormino with Insight Partners. Thank you, Ryden. And thank you, uh, Heather. Ryden, if you could stay on for a few minutes, I'm going to do some countdown music and we'll talk in a minute. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, guys.